1 Timothy chapter 5, 17-25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. I'm not Cody. <laughs> Uh, so if, if you're new with us or you're visiting or if you're listening online, uh, my name is Coleman Barber. I'm one of the elders here today. It's my privilege to preach from this passage this morning. Earlier in our service, we read from number 16, and we read a lot of verses. Spoiler, that's not all of them there, and the story continues. We'll talk a little bit about that. But its verses describe an event known commonly as Korah's Rebellion. And here in this rebellion, you have a relatively small group of men compared to the size of the people of Israel. We're talking about 250 men or so in total to the likely over 1 million people of Israel that are wandering in the desert at this point. But they're not just some ordinary Joes, are they? No, these are the chiefs among the people. These are the men in charge, and they have this problem to sort out. See, God has appointed Moses as leader of the people, and the house of Aaron as high priest. But these men have been given roles that they do not want. It's not that the jobs that they had were actually bad, but they thought they should have more control, more influence, more say in what the people of God were doing. And at this point, they're willing to take it. And this is significant because it's not as though they are simply doubting Moses here. Really, It is God who has placed Moses where he is, Aaron where he is, and these men where they are. So they come up with the age-old question to apply to any situation that we don't like, right? Did God really say? But this time, instead of a piece of fruit, it's wrapped up in the trappings of who God has put in charge of his people. But how does this relate to our passage here today? Well, What I want you to see is that these men were the leaders of the people of God. They had a very similar role to that of elders today. And though they were not elders as we might understand them today, their actions prove the principle at the heart of our passage. Their actions, their character, their leadership, it has a weightiness to it. And that's hard for us to comprehend at times. And because of it, it requires proportionate responses. Here in the context of 1 Timothy, 
and with eldership in the church in view, we see a very similar thing in our passage. It's broken up into three main sections today, with each of these sections providing a call to great care when it comes to elders. And the three areas that we're going to be looking at today are, and if you're note takers, these are your three main points, okay? We're going to be looking at paying elders. We're going to be looking at disciplining elders. And we're going to be looking at appointing elders. And when we take all of these things together, we find that the bottom line of the passage today is that the weight of eldership deserves weighty responses. So as we start our text today, Paul brings us in, he begins things with this transitional phrase, let. This phrase corresponds to the let that we saw back with honorable widows used in reference to, uh, to them in this preceding passage. And it seems as though earlier in the book, in chapters 2 and 3, Paul, he's kind of giving these qualifications for people who should fill these certain positions through uh, when he says, therefore, elders, and likewise, deacons, etc. And Paul, he's very fond of using these kind of grammatic, verbal structures in making his arguments. And so this is all in light of uh, warning of these certain persons at the very beginning of the book that are leading others astray, and those who have already sh- shipwrecked their faith. And so he's using this structure to key us into a new thing. See, before Paul was setting out qualifications for who ought to and who ought not to be elders, now Paul is using this structure with the word let to show how those who do these things honorably ought to be treated. So, for example, good elders deserve to be honored. Good widows deserve enrollment in the help and service of the church. And we'll see later that good slaves are brothers to their masters. There seems to be in each of these cases, an elevation of what is happening with these people, an elevation because of the gospel and its work in their lives. But this section on paying elders has a specific group in mind. It's not just elders. It's the elders who rule well. This qualification is very, very important. It doesn't say that every elder does rule well. In fact, by taking the positive Paul denotes the existence of a negative here. We can conclude then that there are such things as bad elders. We see this both in the opening chapters of this book, as well as Paul's call to Timothy to be a good shepherd and for others to see his progress in that. Not all elders rule particularly well. Now, by God's grace here at Proclaim, We strive to rule well, but we recognize that we fail at times, and so I hope that it's not a surprise to you when that does happen. You've been given fair warning, I suppose. And yet, when we do fail, I pray that you would find us faithful in our repentance, and I pray that others would see our progress, as is the case with Timothy in chapter 4. But, For the elder who does rule well, Paul says to let them be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. These elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. 
The office of elder is an honorable position. This is why the character of an elder must be examined thoroughly. It's not just about who is likable or capable of leading a business well or anything like that. Actually, the main qualifications of elders are character qualifications rather than capabilities. And yet, there are two capabilities, qualifications that can be found. One is ruling and the other is teaching. And Paul has these two in view here. Elders who rule well are worthy of double honor and especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then he has this quote here from Deuteronomy 25.4 that says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, which, if you're not aware, it refers to Old Testament Hebrew case laws. Now stick with me here, okay? Case law works on principles. It doesn't work on exhaustive commands. A lot of people think that the Old Testament is just this list of commands and do's and don'ts. That's not what's going on there. It's illustration of principles that are at the heart of the law. So the idea here in view is that an ox labors while it treads out grain. Literally, oxes walked along and they broke open the husks of grain for use by its master, the one who benefits most from its labor. And in the process of the ox doing the work, the ox would naturally eat of some of the grain that it would tread out for the use of others. Now, a greedy master would come along to this ox who's working hard. He'd put a muzzle on him. He wanted to save everything that the ox worked so hard for for himself instead. In this case, demonstrated that this practice would be cruel to this poor ox who labors so hard. And there are many case laws in the Old Testament that work this way. We have Deuteronomy 25.4, which we already talked about in the verse. We have Deuteronomy 24.15, which says, You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he's poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. And in the New Testament, we have these affirmations of the principles set out as well. In Matthew 10.10, 10, it says, No bag... For your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And this is Jesus sending people out and saying, when you go places, have them give you food. Have them provide for you. You deserve that. Luke 10, 7 says, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Even as Jesus sent out his workers in his earthly ministry, he considers this work of kingdom proclamation as worthy of its wages. Now, I want to be really careful. This is not prosperity gospel preaching. There are unfortunately many false teachers who will twist this idea to mean that preachers should somehow be extraordinarily rich. They've taken the biblical promises about success when obedience to God's word is in view and They've used it as a platform to enlarge their own pockets. And we should be rightfully upset about this. Yet, for those of us who are not easily fooled by the prosperity gospel preachers, there's more common fault that we can fall into. And I think that Paul's words here are worth considering and actually have this in view. It's easy to think that with all the warnings about the love of money in Scripture, that we should help our pastor out, right? 
that a pastor should, out of the kindness of his own heart and his deep love for Christ, struggle to feed his kids. That it's somehow a sign of greater godliness for him to be on the verge of destitution. It's been said by some churches of their pastors, we'll keep him poor and God will keep him humble. Let me tell you, what Paul is saying in this passage is that that attitude is wicked. Not only that, but that practice is wicked. Far from this mindset, Paul says a pastor who preaches well, who teaches well, he is worthy of double honor. And it might be tempting to think, well, honor doesn't mean money. That's true, but Paul is exceedingly clear that he's talking about honor by providing for the needs of the elders who meet these qualifications. Honor is expected for the one who makes preaching and teaching his labor. Double honor for the ones who do it well. This is not a preference thing. This is a justice as outlined by God's word in both the Old and New Testament thing. Because of that, we should take it seriously. So what then is the application for the church today? It's a really simple one. You can write it down. If your pastor is a good one, he deserves to be paid well. That's the truth. It really is that simple. The weight of leadership is very heavy. It's one of the most joyful and difficult burdens to bear. And if a man labors well for the good of the people of God, Paul says, don't you burden him with worrying about how he's going to eat. It's kind of ironically fitting, you know, in all of the made-up holidays and pride months and appreciation months that are out there. Someone actually got one of them right. This month is actually Pastor Appreciation Month, if you don't know. And I wonder how many churches there are out there that are celebrating while actively walking away from the teachings of Paul in this passage. May that never be the case here. Now, I'm up here preaching today, and I love it. But church, we do have a pastor who labors well at the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, week in and week out. And let me tell you, that is tiresome, is rewarding, but it is tiresome work. So let us continue to strive to show the right kind of honor at the privilege that we have, not because Cody is so fantastic, though I do like your preaching, Cody, but because God has blessed us and God has given Cody a heart for his word. See, a pastor who rules well and labors hard at preaching and teaching is of immeasurable benefit to the church. The weight of his position and how he handles it deserves a weighty response. So we see how good elders ought to be treated and honored. But what about the ones who aren't good? The ones who lack character? The ones who fall into sins, whether they be disqualifying or not. Paul moves now to disciplining elders. Verse 19, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The assumption here is that elders being ordained carefully would not find themselves under legitimate cause for discipline very often. If the position is honorable, then they ought to be as well. And this should be vetted out beforehand. But there are opportunities to get this wrong. Elders are fallible people. People lie sometimes. And 
people change. Those people who once presented themselves as being on solid footing have something happen in their life, and it reveals this massive lack of faith. This, I believe, is one of the reasons that Paul says in his qualifications in chapter 3 that he must not be a recent convert. Those of us who've followed Christ for a while know that there will be massive times of testing in our lives. It's likely that even now we've not seen our worst day, which is terrifying, but surely we've not seen our best. Yet, those difficult days come and they reveal to us the places which need sanctification in our lives. And for some, it may reveal a lack of faith in particular areas that might actually be disqualifying, or it may reveal that their faith has never truly been rooted in Christ the King. And when an elder fails, it has a massive impact. So now we think back to this rebellion of Korah. It's not just Korah who is affected. It's not just the other few little leaders along with him. What happens to them and all of their families? The earth opens up and it swallows them. Their whole camp, all their stuff, And all the people, gone. And the 250 men who followed them, consumed by fire. And if you read on in the chapter, you see that the people then are struck with a plague, and Aaron and his family have to contain it. When it's all said and done, nearly 15,000 Israelites are dead. The greater the position within the covenant community, the greater the fallout when faithlessness is revealed. If there is sin in the ranks of leadership, then it should be found out. But, Paul's very clear, it has to be a real account. See, Korah and his posse, they didn't have anything real against Moses. They just didn't like how things were. And that's not a biblical, credible account of sin. But Paul reiterates here that a biblical accusation established properly is necessary. He reiterates the requirements for an established account. So what is it that establishes an account as legitimate? Well, to begin with, at least two or three witnesses. And as we see all over the place in his writings, Paul isn't making up some arbitrary number here. He's simply applying the standards the principles found in the Old Testament to the context of a world filled with the gospel. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.5 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, shall a a charge be established. And again, these case laws point to the principles for establishing evidence for sin. And Paul agrees. And he agrees because it's God's word. This is not a case of one person was offended and told a bunch of people, so now on the one person's account, there are now two or three witnesses. Let me be really clear someone hurting your feelings, then you telling someone that so-and-so hurt your feelings doesn't mean that you have another witness. It means you gossiped. 
That's idle gossip. No, do you know what that really is? That is a vicious cancer in a church. I'm dead serious. Do you want to know the fastest way that you can kill a church? Share concerns with everyone in your church, and even more, make them about the people in your church, especially the elders. We've been coming back to this idea of a church as a household, the household of God. Imagine a home where you have a child who does something wrong, and dad says, well, Billy needs to know this isn't okay. So dad explains to Billy why uh, the thing he's done is sinful, and to not do it again, and here's a reminder via a swat on the butt of the kinds of consequences that come along with that kind of behavior. Go dad, right? But when dad goes to work, Billy goes to mom and gives those big doughy eyes. I know because I was the youngest and I was a boy and I have a mom. I know how to use those. <laughs> because mom loves Billy so much and only wants to make Billy happy, she lets Billy do the thing that dad said not to do. This makes Billy feel good. He feels seen, understood, cared for, but he's also in open rebellion. And now so is mom. Mom tells Billy that dad is actually wrong. And Billy grows in disrespect for his father, waiting for the day he turns 18 so he can get out of dad's oppressive leadership. This sounds like a caricature, I know. But I can show you from many conversations in my lifetime, that this is actually an incredibly normal thing. And I can tell you that this same situation happens in the church. So Cody noted a few weeks back how vital and important it is for elders to be the kinds of men who are willing to tend the flock. And that requires gentleness and care, but it also requires correction. This puts elders in the crosshairs for gossip constantly. Elders fight an extreme amount of temptation to be passive in their duties of correction because of this. When we see that thing in someone's life and think, I know what that grows into if left unchecked. We face the decision to risk our relationship with you out of love for you. And every faithful elder has felt the sting of gossip from those who choose to stew in anger and vent the fumes of their feelings to others in the church. Yet, every faithful elder has also felt the joy of bringing back into the fold those who are headed into the den of wolves. Let me tell you, church, it is worth the risk. It's worth it because Christ himself paid for you with his precious blood and he gave you to us. And we love you. So a charge against an elder must come on the account of two or three witnesses of the offense. And that charge, as we see in the next verse, it must be a charge not of simple feelings of offense, but of biblically defined sin. You have Matthew 18 in view here, and that's in view with every person in the church uh, you know, hurt feelings are not the biblical standard. A biblical case has to be made. But sin does happen. So Paul continues. Along with the great care and reinforced standards of accusation that come along with elders, there's also greater accountability. 
So we've covered what happens when a charge is brought against an elder. You have a reinforced standard of witness that is necessary for a charge to even be heard. But what happens beyond that? It says that those who persist in sin should be rebuked publicly. And I want you all to note that this does not say if an elder sins at all that it's meant to be a public affair, nor does it say that only when an elder sins in a certain way or so much as to disqualify himself from office do we rebuke him publicly. Now, unfortunately, it's all too common to hear these stories of elders or pastors who've fallen into some sin, but frankly, it only seems to be something like an affair that's ever talked about. And often, it's only when you can't actually hide that that happened. So we tend to think of a public rebuke of a pastor or elder, and we have this really, really high bar of what the sin is in mind. He must have done something incredibly awful in order for the church to say something about it. But it's not what's in view here. It's just persistent sin. And Paul says that unlike Matthew 18, where you speak to the whole church when you've turned the apostate person over to Satan, that is to say, we don't believe this person is even a Christian anymore with an elder, you publicly rebuke if he only persists in that sin. So the weighty and honorable position of elder comes with greater potential for shame and dishonor as well. But that's not purposeless. I want you to see this. The elder who is rebuked publicly does not suffer an unjust punishment, nor is his rebuke fruitless. Rather, it is meant to produce something in those who see it, namely fear. Now, this probably feels counterintuitive to hear from the pulpit. Shouldn't fear be the last thing on our mind? I thought love was meant to be the driving force behind our actions. Well, yes, but also no, it's a little bit complicated. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.29-31, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but I will not find, they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. I would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Again, in Proverbs 3, 7 and 8, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Listen, fearing the Lord is mentioned over 20 times in Proverbs alone and over 100 times in the entire Bible. Fear is vital if we want to obey the commands of Scripture. But it's the object of the fear that is important. See, our love for Christ, it should make us deathly afraid of sinning against Him. The thought of sinning against a holy God should make us shudder, and too often we act as if it's no big deal. We think our sin, we think of our sin as no big thing. But 
Christ had to die for it. Don't forget that. The sobering reality of sin, especially persistent sin, should bring soul-crushing, agonizing fear. And because elders are given such a place of honor, they have the duty to be an example to others. And at times, to be an example may necessitate being made an example of. When an elder is rebuked for his sin publicly, then it is clear to all that there is no one who lives above the word of God without cost. And the result is that others would fear, but that they would fear rightly. Not fearing man, but fearing the one who can destroy both body and soul. Now, the weight of all that was talked about before begins to come into focus. Why the high standards of witnesses? Because the cost is so great. But Paul continues here, and it's not some throwaway line. He continues and says, keep these rules and do so without prejudgment or partiality. He feels so strongly about this that he appeals to the witness of God the Father, Christ Jesus, and the unfallen angels of the Lord. And this is a needed warning. It always has been, and because of human nature, it always will be. See, we have this tendency when it comes to accusation to have some sort of skin in the game. We have seen that Paul is pulling quite extensively from the Old Testament standards of justice, of evidence, accusation, proper fear of the Lord and all things. So it would make sense that along with those reminders, he would call to mind for Timothy not only the actions to be done, but the standards with which with to do them. So in James 2.1, uh, James says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, which is not an Old Testament passage. But Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. See, the call here to be impartial, it's not some generic call to fairness. It's not a generic call to withhold judgment. It's a call to act in such a way that reflects, a way that is in line with the very nature and character of God. It's a specific way in which we are to be holy as He is holy. See, the temptation to be partial is great. Someone has an axe to grind and they're spewing gossip all over the church about an elder we have a duty to follow the biblical standards for evidence and definitions of sin. Proverbs 18, 17 warns specifically against believing first accounts. It says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes along and examines him. We must have level heads that are willing to hold our own emotions and the emotions of others to the facts and standards of Scripture in these cases. Or we will fall into prejudgment. That's the key here will fall into prejudgment along with the axe grinder. Now, on the other hand, there's a real temptation to believe no one when accusation comes along. But you need to hear, we elders are sinful men. Redeemed and forgiven, yes, but far yet from perfection. Many of you know this firsthand from me. (laughs) Now, listen, 
your elders, we're really glad that you like us, and we like each other a lot, which is a wonderful thing, truly. But we have to be willing to take an honest look at each other and call out real sin in each other's lives. We must be willing to make an honest assessment of biblical accounts of sin about our elders when they come in the proper manner described in these verses. Let me tell you, church, I have had to confess and repent of sins that I have done to people in this room more times than I can count. A lot of that because I'm related to most of them. I've had faithful brothers rightly address me about things in my life that I was either blind of or willfully ignorant of. So we see that there are these standards for accusation. So what is the application then for us today? Well, I've got two here. I have one for the church and one for the elders. The application for the church is honor your elders with established accounts. Hold to these standards. When we do something wrong, please, please tell us. But use God's word and hold to these standards. For us elders, when an elder is in sin, he deserves discipline. We can't waver on that. We can't turn away from that just because we like each other or anything like that. When an elder is in sin, he deserves discipline. Paul's very clear. In a functioning covenant community that is a church, rooted in God's word, powered by the Holy Spirit, listen, no one gets a pass not even the elders. And that should give us all a little pause. It's a sobering reality. But what a wonderful example it is to see elders who repent and follow Christ when that happens. Know that when we call you to do it over and over again in your lives, it's because we have had to do it over and over again in our lives. It's the only way to live in submission to King Jesus. So we move on now. Paul has talked about paying elders and what it should and shouldn't look like to discipline them. But there are steps before all of that needs to take place, right? Before you can pay them or discipline them, they have to be appointed. We need to take the context in mind here. Paul is writing to Timothy, okay? This letter, though, would be read aloud to the church, even though it's addressing Timothy. Paul's word has weight in these churches. He's planted most of them, and he's installed the elders himself. So here he's telling Timothy, in the hearing of all these people, instructions for what he needs to do to appoint more. And it's not the people of the church that are appointing the elders. It was Timothy as an elder doing it. And this is another aspect of the weight of the position. Being an elder, as we saw in chapter 3, is not about being likable and not about the business leader. We talked about that. It's primarily about character and actions that demonstrate obedience to Christ and his word. So Paul says, they'll be hasty. You should not rush this decision. The laying on of hands was and is a part of the practice of what we call installing or ordaining an elder in the church. It's a setting apart for the specific role and work of the elder. And this should be something that is done with patience and great care. 
When someone is installed into the position of elder without proper vetting, it is an invitation for disaster. Paul warns him here in verse 22 to not partake or not take part in the sins of others to keep himself pure. I think there's kind of a twofold thing happening here in this statement. Paul is warning Timothy to keep himself pure in his own actions, i.e. when the others sin, then don't do the same sin. But in the context, and particularly in light of verse 24, I think Paul is giving a warning that installing an elder who proves himself unfit tarnishes the elder who installed him in the first place. In some sense, you were the one who put him in the place to do the damage that he did with his sin. So you are in some way a part of that. Verse 24 confirms that this is in view because it affirms how hard it is to protect against that. See, the sins of some are conspicuous. That is, they are right out there in the open. You can tell immediately. And you can see right away that this guy's not a good fit. But the sins of others, they appear later. Maybe this is some latent sin that's been lurking under the surface, just waiting for the right opportunity. Or maybe this is something that will grow over time. But Paul says, don't be hasty. It's really important for us to know a man well before he becomes an elder. And it takes time to know more than facts about someone. Someone can fake character for a moment. Or maybe they have real character in that moment. But over time, you see the trajectory of their character. Is this person becoming more like Christ? When confronted with God's word, are they leaning into it or leaning out? Are they applying worldly wisdom to the decisions in their lives? Or do they fear the Lord? Church, you're not going to see that in a month. Honestly, if you've not walked through significant challenge with someone, then you've probably not got a great picture of who they are. So Paul says, don't be hasty. But that's not all he says. He addresses the poor actions of some, but we also see that he calls Timothy to stay pure. He, said, he has this corollary in verse 24 and 25 where he says, so also good works are conspicuous, meaning that many good works show up right away. But also, the ones that don't show right away will show themselves eventually. The key idea here between both verse 24 and 25 is this. Character shows over time. The more time and experience you have with someone, the more you see their character. Paul is affirming the current character of Timothy He doesn't say, make yourself pure. You're not pure yet. He says, keep yourself pure. He's saying, Timothy, I know your good character. Continue to prove that character out over time. There's another clue here that this action is an affirmation of Timothy in the text. You thought I had skipped over it, but I'm not. Paul has this little aside here in verse 23 where he says, in parentheses even. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. When you're reading this logical, thought-out argument and this little parentheses section happens, you might think, like I did when I read it, what is that? (laughs) Like, what what is this even doing here? It seems random, right? It's like Paul just threw this in there 
as a jab at my seminary professor who made a biblical case against alcohol. Like he was like, deal with that one, professor. Uh, We laugh, but I don't think it's quite off the mark. If you remember back in chapter 4, Paul speaks of some who will depart the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. But do you remember what those teachings were? Let's read it here. They will forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. See the key false teaching that Timothy the elder and all the elders whom Timothy would appoint were facing was this. People finding their hope in obedience to law, sometimes made up on their own, rather than obedience to the one who made the law. And the way this was most clearly shown was abstinence from marriage or sex and abstinence from what they put in their stomachs. And the two things that people tend to abstain from have been and continue to be the same today. It's meat and alcohol. Those are the two things that people tend to say, if I want to be holy, I got to get rid of those. This is why I labored the point earlier that this letter is read aloud. It's a public affirmation of Paul to Timothy. Paul here is saying, Timothy, keep yourself pure. And by the way, while you are keeping yourself pure, unlike the false teachers who are abstaining, drink a little wine for your stomach. I can just imagine my seminary professor being there and writing Paul about the alcohol content levels of the ancient Near East. But like, brother, Paul was there. He knows But this section, it's not about alcohol and picking up verses to argue about that. That's a conscience issue. I grant that. This is about the character shown by Timothy over these men who would set themselves up as teachers against the ordained elders of the church, mainly Timothy himself. The point is not about the alcohol. It's about where Timothy and Paul find their hope versus where these false teachers do. And as it is in this 1 Timothy passage, this false teaching of abstinence from what God has called good crops up in the church from time to time, and even from well-meaning people today. I am reminded specifically of this example from the late R.C. Sproul. He told a story of going out to eat with some folks from his church, and they go to a restaurant, and they sat down at the table, and the waitress came over, and she asked the woman at a woman at the table if they'd like a drink menu, and the woman promptly responded, oh, no, thank you, we're Christians. Now, perfectly fine would have been, oh, no, thank you, we don't drink. That is fine. That is a fine decision for a Christian to make. But at that moment, this woman had unwittingly done exactly what these false teachers had done. She made abstaining from something that God had not prohibited alcohol in this case, a condition for true faith in the risen Christ. So R.C. Sproul did what every good elder should do in this situation. He prepared a very careful, thoughtful, and gentle response, which he addressed her with privately, respecting her sentimental frame as the weaker vessel. No. The waitress came back to take the drink order. She got to R.C. and asked what he'd have. And do you know what he said? I'll have a beer, thank you. 
Because the gospel was at stake, people. You're not going to be saved because you didn't get married or because you didn't eat or eat meat or drink some things. You are saved by the blood of King Jesus. And that is how grievous the error is that has snuck into the church here where Paul is writing. That's why Timothy must be a godly example of the gospel. He must protect it by being an example of what it looks like to rightly apply it to all his life. He should drink the wine because they say he shouldn't, but not because he's rebellious, but because when the gospel is at stake, you drink the beer. So today's application, drink the beer. No, 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 no. No, that's not it. Our application for appointing elders is this. Appoint proven men slowly. If we appoint unproven men, you risk them collapsing under the weight of the position. You need an elder like R.C. who will risk his credibility in the pulpit and a little embarrassment of the woman at his church for the sake of gospel purity. You need men who will be the kind of men that Paul is calling Timothy to be not rebellious, but with steel in their spines. Not catering to the desires of the culture around them. Men who will drink the wine when false teachers say to abstain. In our world, men who will stand on the word of God, fearing the Lord more than their own loss of reputation. Men who are willing to say something as simple as God made men and women, anything else is sin. Many use biblical words like abomination, blasphemy, whoring, and murder from the pulpit. Men who believe that the most important thing for the church is for them to set their own well-being aside and stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ as the hope of the world. Not drugs, not therapy, not false peace between nations, not politicians or anything under the sun. Appoint men with strength of character to stand firm both in the duties and the freedoms of the gospel. Men whose good works are shown both now and later. Appoint men who fear the Lord. Frankly, church, when I look around today, I see too few churches with men who are an example of this stalwart, godly character. I pray that it would prove to be true of your elders here at Proclaim that we are the right kind of men. But we need help. So my application for you today, church, is to pray for your elders. The weight of eldership is tremendous, but it is a true joy. Pray for your elders that we would not fail. Pray for strength for us. Pray for our wives and our children that they would be strong in their faith. Pray for provision in the church that we would rightly honor pastors who labor well in the preaching and teaching of the word. Consider the weight of eldership on display in this passage and pray accordingly because the weight of eldership deserves weighty responses. Let's pray.